Welcome to the public morality. Since the Bill of Rights was ratified, there has been a commitment to a free press, a concept that runs a parallel course with a free society. But with public trust declining and increasing an amorphous definition of the press, what does it mean to be a journalist along with the added complexities of the 21st century? Journalism is no longer just collecting, writing, and publishing articles in newspapers and magazines or broadcasting them on the radio. What it means to be a journalist of the 21st century has taken on an entire new meaning. This is a topic that we've explored before in the public morality. Think of it as an ongoing series because it is impossible to have a public morality if the institution committed to holding its elected officials accountable are not trusted. Joining me today is Professor Benjamin Davis. Professor Davis is an assistant professor at Cal State Northridge in California. Professor Benjamin Davis, welcome to the public morality. Glad to be here, Byron. Thank you. I want to begin by asking you in a 21st century context, what is journalism in your view? Well, traditionally, at least contemporarily, it's been defined by many as uh, comforting the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And I've never taken that approach. I think the role of the journalist is, and journalism is fairly simple. And I write about it. It is to, you, know, you seek the truth, you attain the truth, you reveal the truth. It's just that simple. That's what we are supposed to do. In the process of doing that, we may be finding out truths about governments, about uh, neighbors, about uh, police departments, uh, many things. But the point is, it says find out what the truth is for any particular topic, for any particular group, and you just report it, the chips fall where they may. Now, would you hold that same definition for what I'm calling an amorphous term known as media? Um, only if it has what uh, would be First Amendment protections media. Um, those types of media, uh, if they have First Amendment protections, they still have the responsibilities of uh, getting to the truth and telling the truth in a very responsible way. Uh, if they don't, then they lose their First Amendment protections, in which case they can easily be sued. Uh, they could be run out of business. That has happened before. Uh, but yes, media in general, if it has a First Amendment protection, well, then I believe that their role should also be involved with getting the truth out to the public. So with, with that said, uh, it, does that in any way uh, distinguish from what's now being called new media? Well, new media, new media is a term that I think is technology driven. Um, and it's once we move to the digital realm of media, there were just so many different ways of approaching getting instrument information distributed to the public that uh, the term new media came along. And um, no matter what it is, whether it's new media or old media, at the end of the day, it still has to have that old analog type of protection, which protects you in the digital world of are you telling the truth? Do you have a constitutional protection? I mean, you could be using new media, you can be uh, doing streaming, be doing uh, smartphone reporting, um, you could be doing social media, all new different ways of getting information out to the public. At the end of the day, that information has to be reliable uh, in order to maintain its constitutional protection. So you can call it new media, uh, it is called new media in some respects, um, but it, the, the basic role of the journalist within that never changes. Uh, for instance, the, the technology progresses, the basic tenets of journalism remain the same. Well, with that said, um, there is a difference in my view uh, between say um, Lester Holt of NBC News, Nightly News mm -hmm. and say Fox News' um, Sean Hannity both are held under the same media umbrella. Is that okay or should we be more discerning? Is there a way for us to be more discerning? Uh, actually, that's perfectly okay that they both are under the same umbrella. Um, I mean, as you know, the umbrella of journalism is, is huge. I mean, you, you have, for instance, um, you have sports journalism, uh, which has First Amendment protections, business journalism. Uh, you could have neighbors reporting on neighbors if they have their own little 
a media company, a media website or blog for their neighborhood, they're reporting on each other. They still have the same constitutional protections as, as Hannity and as Lester Holt. Um, the reason being is the Supreme Court has ruled throughout the years that you need this marketplace of, of ideas out there in the media in order to maintain a robust and strong democracy. So it goes about protecting everyone. And even people like Hannity and even Lester Holt and the neighbor, they can report information that is inaccurate as long as it isn't done with malice and, and forethought and reckless disregard for the truth that actually exists. Um, so the, this umbrella of journalism protects many different types of communication as long as they remain responsible and protected under the uh, uh, Constitution. Uh, there's a, a ruling that uh, called New York Times versus Sullivan, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It sort of came to light just recently with the Johnny Depp case. And you have to show a certain amount of responsibility when it comes to putting out information uh, to the public. And uh, the juror, jury basically said that uh, Johnny Depp's former wife was not responsible. She operated recklessly. And when you operate recklessly and with forethought, with malice, well, then you don't have your constitutional protection. So everyone basically falls, they fall under this umbrella of journalism, whether they be Hannity or, or um, Lester Holt. But there are different types of journalism. They all fall under the constitutional protection of journalism, the First Amendment. And as you well know, you, you've alluded to it on several occasions already, um, that the First Amendment uh, protects uh, the freedom of the press. The press was, uh, has always been seen uh, as a vital safeguard for the preservation of democracy. But the world of 1791, when the Bill of Rights uh, were ratified, is not the world of eight, was not the world of 1865, let alone 2022. But it, it seems to me we've maintained a notion of the press in our collective minds without considering uh, its relationship to a changing world. How do you see that, sir? Well, uh, let's see. Let's take the example of uh, Ben Franklin, who was probably, if you will, the country's earliest blogger, albeit an analog newspaper. <laughs> he was a blogger, if you will. And uh, he and his brother decided to take on the governments of Massachusetts and uh, the other colonies that you know, had opinions and policies that they didn't like. Uh, they took them on in a very controversial way. And I don't see that any different than what's happening today. And, you know, I point out that uh, the, the group uh, NWA, the original rap group, one of the original rap groups, uh, they express complaints against the police similar to what Ben Franklin and his brother, uh, the complaints they had against the government of Massachusetts. Uh, the expression, uh, freedom of expression, uh, writing those expressions down and distributing them to the public, that really doesn't change regardless of the technology. And if there's anything that's prescient about the Supreme Court interpretations and the constitutional writers, somehow they figured out that there's a permanence to free speech protections uh, that's sort of technology proof. And that's that's where, where we stand. I, I, I don't think that much has changed. When you want to protest the government or you want to complain about the government or you find the government somehow involved in nefarious activities, that can be reported on today, just as it was uh, during the colonial period with the Franklin brothers. Uh, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned Ben Franklin because, you know, we tend to look at, at one time in our, in our history, there was this sort of uh, uh, pervasive moment where journalism was, to use a Fox News term, fair and balanced. <laughs> but but you have Ben Ben Franklin's publications. I would add Thomas Paine's publications. Yeah. Uh, then you get into the yellow journalism of William Randolph Hearst, and yeah. I would even throw in there to even sort of a benign bias of news publications who were either unable or unwilling to see those who had been traditionally marginalized. 
So is this who we are right now merely a continuation of an old phenomenon that's really as old, even older than the Republic itself? Uh, yes, I, I think it is a continuation. Uh, we can get um, infatuated by the technology and the ways of getting that information out. But at the end of the day, you're going to hurt someone with false information or you're going to help the public with accurate information, regardless of, of, the, uh, of the technology. And uh, yellow journalism exists today. Fake news exists today. And uh, the technology some kind, somehow can mask uh, fake news. It's difficult for users to find out what is true and what is not true. Uh, but if it comes down to the courts, it can be discovered and it eventually will be discovered if something is fake and, and not true. I believe that's one reason why you have companies like Facebook putting a lot of effort into discovering fake information that's put on their flat pat platforms because they know that eventually the law will catch up with them one way or the other. They can't always claim that we're just a distribution source. They are more than a distribution source to some extent, uh, as massive as they are. They have to take a greater responsibility than just being a simple pipeline. I think it was, what, 1919 is when um, Oliver, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously opined that free speech does not protect falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. Right. Um, mm -hmm. we, have, we have a number of platforms today that are viewed as media falsely yelling fire seemingly almost on a daily basis. Can anything be done to address this or is it too late? Um, it is, in some respects, it's too late. Uh, journalism and society is in the process of catching up with the technology. And the technology companies are in the process of catching up with their own technology. It's um, uh, sort of like a, I don't want to say it's a Dr. Frankenstein they've created, but they have created a technology that is roaming along on its own and the rest of society is trying to catch up with it whether it be the fake uh, ads that go out during the campaign season online or what you see on, on TV, or what I should say what you see on screen as opposed to on TV, because a lot of the information comes out on screens now. Um, it's not too late. It, it isn't too late. Uh, I believe court decisions will have to catch up with much of the fake news distribution and the fake news origination. Um, it is. Um, yeah, it, 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 I, I think that we're in a uh, transition in terms of how you monitor information that's coming out and how you catch up with what is real and what is, is not real. Uh, it's all technology, all because of a fast growing technology. Uh, what's it, um, the more principle that technology roughly will change every 18 months, that's what he said originally back in, I believe it was 65. But now it, the technology marches along much, much faster than that. Professor Davis, we just made you uh, here on the public ground the king for a day. And so uh, so how king, might we- King for a day? <laughs> you king for a day. Well, yeah, yeah, at, least okay. until, at least until this broadcast concludes. Oh. Um, how might we view such platforms like you just referenced, Facebook, Twitter, um, on, and then you got political and then uh, the publication that, that you and I have both written for Huffington Post, a uh, HuffPost now, H how should we view those in light of what you just said? Well, I, I think that is how they should view themselves. If, if they're going to distribute information to the public, they have a responsibility uh, to make sure that what they are putting out there has some element of truth. Otherwise, I believe that they should be prepared to be exposed to, to the court system. Um, it, it, it's, it's really, as you know, that people tend to forget that the democracy that we say we love so much depends dearly on accurate information going out uh, through the press, through the media. And anyone that strays from that, that has a huge, massive pipeline, they are a danger to democracy. And not just in the U.S. or around the world, as Facebook has discovered. People can become reckless around the world using their platform, and governments have fallen as a result. People have died as a result. But this particular democracy in the, in the U.S. Uh, relies a lot on 
accurate information and a robust uh, uh, journalist, journalism. Uh, the HuffPost and you know, political, Facebook and Hannity and Drudge, they can say whatever they want as long as it doesn't become um, malice and with uh, and reckless and irresponsible. Um, that's, uh, I, I can't emphasize enough that no matter who you are, and believe me, it's pretty soon we'll find people in neighborhoods that are putting out their own publications for their neighbors. Those very people still have the same responsibilities as the Huffington Post, Huff Post, excuse me, and the New York Times. Um, this is all about expressions that have to, that must be healthy to the public discourse. And when they are not healthy, well, mechanisms have to be remedied. And that will be the court system. Once the courts catch up with the technology, it's happening so fast right now. But uh, no, I don't see I don't see any distinctions, just like I don't see any distinctions between what Ben Franklin was doing and NWA when they said the police. And I don't see distinctions between um, what Drudge does and what the New York Times does when it comes to to protections. And some people, I, I, you know, there are old school journalists and, you know, they sort of get on my nerves, trust me, that think that there's this hierarchy within journalism, whereas there's elite journalism. There's Dan Rather and there's Walter Cronkite. And then there are, there are guys like Drudge and there are people around the corner that have started their own podcast. So it's different groups altogether. No different at all when it comes to journalism. They fall under that journalism protection, under that journalism umbrella, because each of them have that First Amendment protection. If they're saying something that you don't like, and like I said before, even if they say something that isn't accurate, they still have that First Amendment protection as long as that inaccuracy comes with certain caveats that it wasn't malice and um, it wasn't reckless, purposeful, purposefully. Well, if journalism, at least theoretically, is, is that bridge, I'm sort of paraphrasing your words here, as you said earlier, uh, is a bridge between what happens and, 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 and what the people should do with that information. What's the danger to democracy when the practice of journalism has altered over time, as, as you have alluded, while sort of maintaining a stilted definition and has not caught up with technology? Well, there's, um, there is a danger of advocacy journalism. Um, and there's also the promise and the benefit of advocacy journalism, uh, which both of which still fall under that uh, journalism umbrella, First Amendment protection. Um, uh, but there's not much we, we can do about that. We actually want that marketplace, uh, the marketplace of ideas to be out there. Um, at, at some point, the citizenry has to figure out what their responsibility is in terms of the information that they intake. They are overwhelmed right now, especially the younger generation. They're overwhelmed with information coming at them and they don't know what to believe. They may find one little nugget of a trusted source that they want to stick with, but what if that trusted source turns out to be putting out fake news, which has happened uh, on more than one occasion. Um, it, um, advocacy journalism, is uh, has always been around it will be around and it's just something that has to it has to be accepted now i don't think that it's good for a um let's see what's the mainstream journalism organization to consistently be involved in advocacy journalism because you could lose your uh the public's trust um uh, advocacy journalism does always involve the possibility that you could lose people who pay to use your your uh, your site, who pay for your your paper or for your television or for your cable. You could lose people based upon uh, customers based upon that, your advocacy. Um, but it's it, it's um, it's a natural part of the democracy. It's the fake news part of it. You could advocate something and still be accurate. Uh, you could advocate something that is not real. That is the real danger to democracy. So when you say advocacy journalism, uh, are, you, are you talking about uh, opinion formats? 
Uh, yes, yes. Or let's say there's a, I've had more than a few students who decided to create their their blog journals on environmental issues, and they clearly want to advocate a cleaner environment through their journalism. And that, that's their conscious choice. They pursue it hard. And uh, yeah, that that that's that can be considered journalism and good journalism, but it has to be accurate. It's one-sided, but it still has to be uh, accurate. Does it have to be fair and balanced? Well, of course I teach them to put balance in there, but once they leave my classroom and they continue their blogs, I tell you that 90% of them, probably more than that, stay on one side of the issue, which is the side uh, that, that they prefer. Uh, hopefully they remain accurate with the information that they're putting out to the public. One way to prove your accuracy is to put in opposing opinions. Uh, that's how you balance it out. It may not always seem fair, but if you try to balance it out, show the possibility that you're being objective because you can never be completely objective. Uh, that helps advocacy journalism. Advocacy journalism, to some extent, has to show the other side of the issue in order to mirror what they want to get out to the public accurately. In other words, you can always say that there are issues, there are problems that we want to expose. Well, in order to do that, you have to show the source of the problem. And usually that source is not something that you advocate for, something that you believe in, but you have to show it in order to expose or in order to report on what you believe really should be known. You just can't tell the public, these are the facts, this is the law, this is what I believe is uh, should be done, and leave it at that. It is, this is the law, these are the facts, this is why things should be done because of. What is the because of? Show the public what the because of is. In the process of doing that, you're showing a little bit of object objectivity. You know, when I listen to that last answer, I'm thinking, and I'll just pick on two, two stations in particular, MSNBC and Fox News. Mm -hmm. They'll have an issue and they'll have a, a someone noted on their side, uh, I mean, the side that they, they lean toward philosophically. Um, and then and, and as an attempt to be fair and balanced, they'll have the opposing side will be a blind orangutan with stage three cancer and Alzheimer's <laughs> disease. You know, yeah. and, they'll, and they'll try to make you think like this, this is fair and bound. So can we avoid that? Or that's just a, a practice. That's, a, that, that's strictly business. And I worked at both of those places, by the way. Um, I know you yeah. did. That's why I picked them. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's strictly business. That's all about ratings and making money for corporations and shareholders. Um, Fox does what it does because they have an average age uh, demographic of 63 and up male, and they like that type of stuff. And as long as it's making money for them, they're going to keep doing it. And in order to do their promotions to the public in general, to say fair and balanced news, well, they're going to pull in someone that will say something that's opposed, slightly opposed to what their, their brand is. Um, they don't do that quite as often as they used to. They used to have uh, like their regular foil, the liberal foil that, that they would bring in. Um, but that, that's all about business. It's all about um, making money. And uh, MSNBC, um, they don't do it as much. They're just pretty much saying, look, you know, we're opposed to something and we're going to state reasons why. Uh, you have um, anchors like um, Rachel Maddow, who, who takes a real teach-in approach to her journalism, which is usually fact-based. Uh, and you can say that, you know, everyone can adjust facts to their own benefit. But I watch her and her facts usually stand, you know, the, the test of scrutiny. Um, but yeah, they you, you do have bias, but they know that that is what's making them money. And when that, believe me, when Fox News audience dies out, and they have to look around and figure out, well, what's the next demographic we can go for? Well, they're going to cater to that demographic. Um, they they care, I believe they do not care about the First Amendment at all. Uh, I don't believe they care about the Constitution at all, except for where the Constitution gives them the rights as a corporation to have certain rights uh, of their own. Um, but uh, no, I think at the end of the day, when we see 
patterns when we see styles and brands on cable news it all has to do with uh, shareholders and uh, shareholders wanting profits on that note i'll throw out a name that uh, you and i are both familiar with i remember and this sort of goes back to the burden also of the consumer being discerning uh chris matthews did a segment on the fact that exxon uh paid no taxes there was another corporation that paid no taxes that that particular year which was general electric general general electric happens to be owned by mb uh owns nbc so the, the fact that general the fact at the time so the fact that general electric paid no taxes somehow they were omitted from the story and, the, and, and i don't want to rehash that story per se but but there still remains i just ha i happen to know that information at the time but there, there still remains a burden on the consumer to be active and discerning and not and not just take it whole cloth yeah well think about how chris matthews viewers his uh, his fans were i mean they practically held him on a pedestal. And whatever he said was pretty much, you know, religion. And for that reason, he had the responsibility to take out three seconds, three seconds <laughs> to say um, this show or NBC is owned by General Electric, which also did not pay taxes last year and then carry on. Right. That wasn't even three seconds. That wasn't even three seconds, by the way. Go ahead. Right. And I mean, that's his responsibility as a as a, as a journalist. As a corporation, it's their responsibility. Because the more integrity you have with your audience, the more likely they're going to keep coming back. And once they start to not believe you, they'll think twice about coming back. They don't want to get burned at the picnic table again because you put out information that was absolutely wrong. I mean, you look like the crazy uncle in the attic. Um, but when you can put out accurate information, whether it be quickly or over you know, a prolonged period of time like Rachel Maddow does, well, then that helps the consumer. It gives them muscle. It gives them picnic table muscle. They can say things that are accurate and they can, to some extent, uh, defend it. But when you're giving them bad information or partial information, and they end up looking like fools in front of relatives and friends and classmates. Well, they're not likely to come back to you, especially when that information comes out in the public in general. And then they realize that they weren't given what I didn't realize that General Electric didn't pay any taxes at all. But my man, my man, Chris Matthews, went on about Exxon. Why didn't he say anything? Well, you know, that's that's the type of credit integrity that uh, reporters can't afford to lose. You mentioned uh, the information overload create, and created in, in large extent by social media. Lessons, uh, the appreciation in my view for the traditional journalism that you talked about earlier and that it fosters the belief that we the people can simply just find our preconceived truth anywhere we want to and not be challenged by those facts that you just referred to that are critical to a democracy. Yeah. Well, that's fun, isn't it? That's great. <laughs> I mean, it, it's nice. Everyone can find their own little cozy corner in terms of information uh, that, that, that makes them feel good and reinforces their beliefs, whether their beliefs are attached to something accurate or, or, or not. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I, I have my Facebook group and, um, and you know, unfortunately, my my daughter, she never sees anything I post. She said, Dad, I, I check in there every 10 business days just to see what's going on. And I'm out of there because it's not for them. But, you know, I have um, my Facebook friends. I have I know for sure that I have uh, evangelical, southern evangelical Christians. I know that I have very liberal Christians, uh, conservative Jews and um liberal jews progressive jews um i have uh people that don't believe in anything i have i have the entire mix in there because i don't want anyone to think that they're comfortable enough in my facebook space to think that they're not going to be challenged in terms of their their thinking and their assumptions about life but most of most people don't always do that. They want the comfort of the echo chamber, people reinforcing what they already think the truth, truth to be. 
that is a danger to society. Um, that because people can walk around like blind mice uh, for the most part and uh, thinking things that are totally not true. Um, I can say that um, once the former president, um, the recent former president, uh, reinforced what he called fake news, well, it gave everyone a license to declare anything that they didn't like to be fake news. And thus, in many cases, people became blinded uh, to the truth. And to some extent, people are suffer, suffering behind that. Even some of his own allies uh, who are in court right now, <laughs> are in jail right now because of the January uh, 6th uh, insurrection that they were behind, which was driven by fake news, which was advocated by him in, in many respects. So I, you know, this, this echo chamber that social media provides is um, it's a challenge to, to society. I don't know what the answer is. No one knows what the answer is other than people have to figure out what is their responsibility to self and society and somehow tie the two together. In, in the spirit of being fair and balanced and full disclosure, I would also add to your list of Facebook friends, the host of the public morality. So everybody knows. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> According to a uh, October 2021 Gallup poll that only 36% that were polled had a great deal or fair amount of trust in mass media. Um, though the term mass media uh, was not specifically defined, if only 36% trust the enterprise whose primary mission uh, is government accountability, how can, how can it fulfill its, uh, the original mission of being the fourth estate? Well, you know, I'm going to be skeptical, which I'm supposed to be as a journalist. And so any poll that comes out, I'm going to be skeptical of it, period. Uh, that 36% number doesn't particularly bother me. Um, it sounds familiar. Um, that 38, 36, 35, 33 number. It's pretty much a third, that third that is always in opposition to something one way or the other. I mean, when you drop below, when you get into the 20s, well, then there's something really critical there. But I think at any point, you can find a third of the population that's going to be opposed to just about anything that you do, unless you're a purely populist president or purely populist issue, and everybody loves it like gas prices going down by $5 a gallon or something like that. Um, that doesn't bother me. Um, I remember being in, in, at, at NPR um, when we used to be called, when it used to be called National Public Radio. And we weren't popular with plenty of conservatives on Capitol Hill. And we weren't popular with some left liberals in San Francisco, you know, uh, and, or you know, other parts of the country. Um, we got it from all sides. And that was a badge of honor. What matters is whether you like us or not, are we telling you the truth? So when you, when if you're part of the 36% that has a low opinion of the news media, is it because of mass media, is it because we're giving you information that you don't like to hear, or is it because we're giving you information that is wrong? And people have to understand that they have to ask themselves a question, is it, ask themselves that question. I don't like what they're telling me, but is it wrong? If it's wrong, well, then it's, it's, I think it's okay for that 36% not to like them. But if it's because you just don't like it, because you don't agree with it, well, that's, you know, that's, our, that's our job. I mean, we're not supposed to be liked. And I tell my students that all the time. Be prepared. Someone's going to spit in front of you. Someone's going to spit on you. You know, if you're doing your job right, someone's going to complain. But you, your only protection is the truth so I can handle the low numbers. Um, no problem whatsoever, as long as there's accurate information behind uh, the, the uh, behind those numbers. Uh, you, um, you mentioned NPR and I, I, re I remember, I, I think, um, I'm, I think it was Newt Gingrich who really did the campaign toward defunding NPR saying that it was the equivalent of Fox News. It was the less version of Fox News. And I had a lot of people accept that whole cloth. 
that, well, why are we funding the liberal press when um, we wouldn't fund a conservative press? Um, doesn't that go back to just believing what we want to believe and not really understanding the ramifications of between the two? Because they're not, in my view, they're not, they're not similar. Yeah, Newt, excuse me, Newt just used NPR or National Public Radio as a dog whistle. Uh, it was just a foil. He knew darn well that he couldn't uh, eliminate it, but it was a great thing to advocate against, that's for sure, it was that liberal media. Um, but, you know, he depends on that to some extent. Most conservative politicians depend on their local uh, NPR stations to some extent. So they're not going to go too far against it. But you can still say that, hey, they are the um, villain of the month or the, or the or the election cycle. You can use them for that reason. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, you know, that's you, it's, it's part and parcel with being part of what National Public Radio was when I worked there and NPR Now, though NPR Now tends to be a little bit more on the, um, we're going to look over our shoulder side before we do this but uh it, it's still it's still public media and the the public needs it i mean if you, if, we, if if we didn't have public broadcasting well then everything would look like hannity drudge uh maddow and 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 um chris hayes um but you know you, you need something that has explicitly a responsibility to the public and it doesn't always make that you know it doesn't always get over the hurdle of being totally responsible to the public but they do have the responsibility to reflect to take criticism and to go back and, and try again uh, their shareholders their shareholders public Hannity shareholders different story altogether uh, so it's, uh, you know, public radio, public broadcasting, at the end of the day, they're going to make mistakes, but they have to remember that they have to go back and reflect and try to get it right a second time around. Hannity doesn't have to do that. As long as he's making money, he's cool. But in, in the broader sense, though, how can democracy survive if the only source I trust is ProfessorBenjaminADavis.com. That's the only source I trust. That's probably a good source, but it's the only one I trust. Can de can de can democracy? I say you agree with that. Can democracy survive if if that's a, a persistent mindset across the board? You know what? We don't know yet. We we have no idea. Um, you know, I'm very bullish on uh, journalism and its future. Uh, but we don't know the answer to your question yet. Uh, we still have to go through a few more generations of technology and citizen awareness and citizen responsibility uh, before we know if democracy will survive the onslaught of, uh, this, of information that is just a huge spigot of information flowing out at, at people. Um, no one knows the answer to that. Everyone's hoping uh, but uh, no one knows. There also seems, in my view, uh, with, with the advancement of technology in the 21st century, to be a, a journalistic hybrid that's been created. It's individuals that want the journalism title without the ethical responsibilities associated uh, with the profession. How, how do you see that? I think that they, um, you should let them let them do it. Um, some of them will go through the trouble of learning the role of journalists and the legal protections that journalism have, that journalism has, and others won't. They'll just be totally irresponsible. They'll say whatever they want. And uh, if it catches up with them, it's going to hurt them. It's going to cost them. But I'm, I'm all in, in favor of that. I'm all in favor of you know, the group of teenagers starting their own news station, which is very possible technology-wise. And they can compete with the local TV stations. Uh, if they, Let's say you can have a group of teenagers that decide they're only going to do all the high school sports in their particular region, in their city. And in the process of doing that, they may get information wrong. They probably would. Um, they may 
um, say something that hurts someone, something that's uh, inaccurate, something that uh, uh, they can be sued for. All of that can happen. All of that should happen. Um, and it will happen because the technology already says that what I just described is going to happen. And to, it's happening now to a small extent, but there will be neighborhood outlets that are out there putting out information and you can't stop them. You can't stop them because they're not the New York Times. Uh, the technology is already saying that there are, you, the technology tells them that you can't stop them. But freedom of expression, freedom of press also says that, that you cannot stop them. Um, we just have to hope, want, encourage uh, smaller outlets, the freelance reporter, the person that's instantly a journalist, to understand the importance of the truth and their role within the Constitution. I mean, this is, I mean, you think about plumbers, you think about lawyers and ministers, and there's only one profession <laughs> that's mentioned for protection in the Constitution, and that's the press. That's how important it is to society. And when people, I think people need to think about that when they decide, oh, I'm going to be a journalist for a day. Well, why is it that this particular field was protected when this country started? And when you absorb that, you start to realize you have a little responsibility, even if you're only doing high school scores for your neighborhood. Uh, more people need to understand that if they want to step into this field, it's more than just being on TV, more than just doing the red carpet and more than just doing interesting feature stories. You're stepping into a field that has constitutional protection from more than 200 years ago for a very important reason. It's one of the pillars of a democracy. Technology, as you, as you have alluded, has created uh, more in the 21st century citizen journalists. Uh, could, could, could we conclude from your last response that paradoxically the democratization of technology in that it has created citizen journalists, but it has made the nation less democratic in that it's also aided an, under, an undermining of traditional journalism in, in, in the sense that the standards have lowered for traditional journalism as you have this influx of citizen journalism through the democratization of technology. Yep, yep. Certain, certain standards have um, lowered, and I think it's going to get lower to some extent. Uh, I think eventually they will, when people get in a corner for information, when there's a crisis for information, well, they're going to, that's when they're going to understand the importance of uh, good journalism, uh, the importance of stepping outside of their echo chamber to find out what is really going on. Um, um, that's, um, but yeah, I think standards are lower as more freelancers get in and declare themselves journalists. Uh, there will be issues. I see it in the classroom all the time, but I'm there to catch them. <laughs> I'm thinking sometimes, oh boy, if I wasn't here and they put that out, oh my goodness. But it's gonna be happening over and over multiple, multiple times. And it's not just going to be human beings doing this. I mean, we have to be aware that there are software programs that are creating information that can be considered that people would think of as journalists. And the, I'm speaking of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is as a way of teaching itself. And the more it learns, the more it decides to make decisions about reporting that, um, a certain ethnicity creates certain issues within society. Those type of things can happen um, only because it has data, data that says these things happen, but it doesn't have the reason. It doesn't have the common sense that a human would have. That's going to influence how journalism looks to a, a great degree. Uh, we have no, <clears throat> we have no idea where artificial intelligence is going to end up uh in terms of its influence on, on journalism but we do know for sure that there needs to be a human factor involved with artificial intelligence to keep it from running out of control and running roughshod over accuracy and over truths and things that only humans humans can uh, discern um i think the individual 
the the private journalism, the blogs, that's going to continue to grow. And that is a very, very good thing for democracy. But we need those bloggers to understand that the role of journalism is all about truth. And even if you don't like the truth, that's your that's your job. Um, it's okay to advocate, but you have to be clear in terms of what you're advocating against. Don't just tell me what you're advocating against. Show me what you're advocating against. And then I can say, oh, okay. All of my students, they have to do a blog. And um, their goal is to be objective <clears throat> as much as possible and give both sides of the story within their, you know, their news stories. But just in case, and it's part of the digital media pyramid that I designed for news, just in case at the bottom of each story, there's something called educate yourself. And the students have to put information in there that they may not agree with, but it's always the other side. It's the opposite of what their story is about. They can put something in there that sort of supports pretty much what the story is about. They have to put something in that is neutral, uh, but they always have to put something in that is opposite of what their story is, uh, what the theme of their story is. And to let people educate themselves. And a lot of it has to do, uh, the future of journalism has to do with the audience educating themselves about uh, information and not just accepting things whole cloth. Uh, I'm going to come back to something you said about artificial intelligence, because I think there's an assumption that artificial intelligence is uh, neutral. And what I heard in your statement is that it has its own set of biases. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah, it's garbage in, garbage out. Now, who's putting the information uh, into the um, artificial intelligence platforms? Uh, I mean, we, we've already seen some examples of, of that already uh, with in terms of information being put into uh, artificial intelligence that scans for criminals. Uh, uh, we've seen people uh, arrested because AI platforms have said that this particular person of a certain hue was the same as another person who was a criminal. Those type of things will, will happen. Um, the, the, it's, it's artificial intelligence is it's, it's based upon machine learning. And it's interesting, I don't wanna get into too much detail, but the more data that we put out on the internet as individuals, the more intelligent artificial intelligence gets. It just grabs all that information and it starts making decisions based upon that. It will start making decisions on its own. And um, at some point there's reason. I mean, there, there is, uh, someone has to be able to use subjectivity with data. Artificial intelligence cannot do that. Someone has to say that just because you're saying that all of this data indicates a certain result, someone has to say, well, that result has certain caveats that you, artificial intelligence, and the data doesn't know. And at this point, everyone understands that there has to be a human at the button end, someone at the enter side of artificial intelligence that finally says, okay, go ahead and enter and go. And you can control to an extent what our artificial intelligence or AI puts out to the public. But not quite at that point yet. AI can pretty much, you know, it can it can grow, it can grow, and it can pretty much take over and distribute as much information in any way that it wants to. Um, it, it's capable of doing that. Um, if it's stopped, it's usually because there are humans, there are corporations that are uh, putting holds and pauses on the progress of, of artificial intelligence. But uh, we don't know where it will stop. No one knows where artificial intelligence will stop if you leave it un unfettered. I wanna, I wanna end our conversation uh, with a little thought experiment, have a little fun. Mm. Uh, it's, it's 2022, um, could, would there in your view be a Woodward and Bernstein in, 20, in this 2022 cl um, climate of the press? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you know what? <laughs> they won't be working for the Washington Post. Well, they will be. They may be working for the Washington Post, but they will be. They will be people that have access to databases, 
and they will pull out information and they will be responsible. They will understand the role of journalists. They will have to, they will know that whatever they put out to the public has to be accurate and they will put it out. They will find, yeah, they will find corruption. There are people that will be finding corruption. It's in, we'll get back to artificial intelligence. AI is going to make it easier for the person in the basement to get data, to get information and redistribute it to the public. Researching will be much, much easier for individuals. Um, that you'll be able to use your smartphone. I would, let's not say in 2022, but you'll be able to use your smartphone to gather reams of information that will help you investigate governments and local school boards and, and you know, military organizations. Uh, yeah, I think we're gonna, we're, I think in the near future, we will find a slew of Woodward and Bernstein's coming out with information and every, the public's gonna have a hard time keeping up with it. And it will put the government on guard. It will put government leaders uh, on guard and they'll probably start thinking, well, maybe I don't wanna go into politics because <clears throat> if I'm dirty or if I become dirty, I'm going to get caught and you will get caught. Um, I'm very optimistic about journalism in that respect, but we need our people to be responsible. The tools, <clears throat> the tools for doing Woodward and Bernstein type of work will be there in spades. Um, but the type of thinking, the responsibility that comes with being a journalist, we need to make sure that that's accompanied with anyone that's using this, the technologies that are going to be uh, there in front of them. I'm, I'm super, super, super optimistic about what journalism will be doing to uh, help the public find corruption uh, in, in the near future. Professor Benjamin A. Davis, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the public around. We much appreciated your wise counsel, sir. Well, I was glad to be here. I hope I offered something that your audience can certainly use, and uh, it's good talking with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>